0: My name is Gunner, and I front a local Austin band called The Big Gun Show. Now, I created this podcast to sit down with other songwriters, musicians, artists, lovers of music, to talk about their top five records that have inspired their lives and musical prowess. Now, today's guest is Mitch Ballard. Mitch moved from Nashville to Austin a couple few years ago to start the BMI office. This office and them moving here reminds me of why Austin is Austin, okay? We have organizations like HAM and Sims. There's no other city in the world anywhere that has such a focus on artistic and music integrity. It makes me extremely proud to be a seventh-generation Texan. Now, before Mitch opened the BMI office here in Austin, he'd been called the Swiss Army Knife of the country music business. He started off by turning down a music scholarship to North Texas, uh, mainly because he didn't really want to play the trumpet anymore. Uh, Then he fronted a a country swing band, and then he was a tour manager for B.J. Thomas for eight years. He owned a website building company for musicians and then had a LED concert company. So, yeah, I think he knows the music business, and I love podcasts like this because I don't really have to talk. Um, During this podcast, I threatened to uh, trash my encyclopedia of country music because he knew everything. I mean, why would I need that when I can just call him? But moving forward, all podcastees on the My Top 5 Records podcast will now have to deal with quizzes, and today is going to be no exception. Um, They won't know what I'm going to ask them. It's not supposed to be hard, but I assure you they're going to have a good time. Uh, Mitch did pretty darn good. And if you're digging, please, 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 if you're digging on what we're laying down, please give us a review on iTunes. iTunes. Um, you can find my top five records Pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts But a star for each one of your top five records On iTunes That's five stars Would be super appreciated Link is in the notes And let's get to this conversation But first Close your eyes You're on the island you just bought In the Caribbean What five records do you have? Ladies and gentlemen This is going to be a great episode I've got Mitch Ballard Of BMI with me today and we are going to talk about his top five records. How's it going, Mitch? Hi, man.
1: It's going well. And Gunnar, I really appreciate you inviting me to be uh, part of your podcast. And, you know, I've been catching up on previous episodes, man. What a great job. I'm glad you're doing this. Oh,
0: thanks, man. It's, it's really fun. And I just told you, you know, this is not meant to be a, uh, you know, it's meant to, to give insight to your fans on why you are who you are musically, personally, whatever. You know, so take a peek behind that curtain.
1: I love it. You know, I think there's probably going to be some surprises in there for some people. You know, they I know. they see me walk around in starts of jeans, and
0: <laughs> cowboy boots, <laughs> <in> cowboy boots, <laughs> and they're like, what? He likes that album? Well, let's talk about your top five right now. Okay, so we've got this is what you've told me George Strait, Straight Country. Such a good album. I loved it. ACDC Back in Black. This, that's going to be my funnest one to talk about with you today. Uh, Frank Sinatra at Live at the Sands um gary stewart out of hand and dina washington the swinging miss d now this is an eclectic i I didn't see all these coming from you and i love that um so you've got these five albums for the rest of your life where are you taking them
1: you know i'm I'm thinking i'm gonna win the powerball and buy an island in the caribbean or maybe off the coast of belize and just Go live on an island like and the, like the Firefest <laughs> yeah, <right>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> except for real right uh, and you know that's one thing i took into consideration you know the if you can only listen to five albums i'm not gonna you know people always ask me especially being in the music business as long as i have mm-hmm. you know it's 30 years now and, and being with bmi they're like oh what's your favorite genre and you know to me there's two kinds of music that i'll you know to me there's two kinds of music music i like and music i don't yeah. And and genre has nothing to do with it. And but I did uh, you know think if I only had five, I don't want to listen to all rock or all country or all R and B or you know something like that. I'd I'd want some variety. Yeah. And so that's really kind of you know, where I went into like A C D C and Dinah Washington and some you know, these these are Dina. also Okay, that's yeah, what yeah these are all, you know, albums that, you know, influenced me musically as well. And you know, so I'm a you know I'm a player. I played trumpet and then, you know, started trumpet when I was in fifth played grade. Guitar. Yeah. And I play guitar. And you know, so, you know, as a musician, and I'm also a songwriter as well. You know, so all of these in different ways have influenced me professionally as well.
0: Awesome. I didn't know you were a songwriter too. That's yeah. great. Yep, sure am. And that's kind of uh, what I consider myself. I, I, don't, I don't consider myself a musician. I feel I feel like that's my my big, biggest weakness as a musician is that I'm a songwriter. Because every time I get oh that's an idea I gotta go. I just stop trying to practice and I have to go write that song. Right. <laughs> it's one of the. It, it's definitely
1: one of those things where, you know, growing up in Texas, you know, you I was playing guitar and writing songs and such, and I moved to Nashville right out of college. I'm a University of North Texas grad got offered a trumpet scholarship you know it's kind of ties back into the sinatra and Mm -hmm. that you know big band you know with the big orchestra thing um but didn't want to got offered a scholarship to north texas got an offer to scholarship to texas a&m and i didn't want to play trumpet after high school you know i was more into guitar and and such and um anyway so i you know i look at these and 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 all of them have, you know, but when I moved to Nashville, I'm like, I am not a guitar player. (laughs) There's guitar players in Nashville. Trust me. It's, you know, makes you want to go, you know, throw your guitar in the dumpster. (laughs) Uh, No joke, man. I
0: mean, I can't play for Jack. Uh, Anyway, let's talk about George Strait because, okay, so here's a question for you. I can make this a quiz question, but it's not very fair. Um, Do you know who the, the biggest George Strait fan in the world is? Uh, probably his wife, Norma. No, my grandma. My <laughs> grandmother loves George Strait. I mean, she <laughs> she, she loved he, She She's passed, but, man, she always listened to George Strait. So um, let's talk about Straight Country. This was his debut album. Yep. 1981. 40 years
1: ago this year. Holy, you I know, didn't and even think about that. Unwound was the lead single, and that's uh, April of 81. And, you know, George, uh, he wasn't signed to a full record deal then. Uh, He was signed back then. It was really popular in the 60s, 70s, a little bit in the early 80s for, you know, artists would get what they were called a singles deal. And you would usually cut four songs, which would be two 45s, an A-side and a B-side. And so they'd have two A-sides to release to radio. And it was their way of just throwing something against the wall and seeing if it stuck. You know, and, and growing up in Texas, you know, I grew up listening to Merle Haggard and, and George Jones and, you know, Bob Wills and all those, you know, older country artists and Ray Price, Johnny Bush and and such. And, you know, here comes this guy out of Texas and Rob Pajakas, that fiddle intro of Unwound. Mm-hmm. I think the I think the state of Texas kind of shook a little bit. Yeah. The, the first time that was played on the radio down here and everybody's like, what the hell is this? You this can is say whatever words you want. On amazing. This and. You know, it, it started climbing the charts so fast that MCA called Irv Woolsey, his manager, yeah. and calls George and goes, "We need you to get back to Nashville, and this is this record's on fire, and you have a full record deal now." Right. And you know they saw the potential in in George, and you know to see that debut album, and to see, you know, where he is now, you know, in the Country Music Hall of Fame, he's had more number ones than any Anybody. other artist in any genre. any genre. And the music business has changed so much that I don't think there'll be anybody that will ever match that again. It's, it, I, I just look at it now. The, the business is so different and music consumption is different. And I just, I, I don't think, at least in my lifetime, now. I'll ever see anybody that's had over 60 number one hits of any genre. You
0: know what? What I really love when I went back and listened to that and I did my reading and stuff and some research. You know, it's kind of that, it's it's a different, at the time, it was like kind of the one of the first to come out there with the honky-tonk slash Bakerfield sound, you know, kind of mushed together. And, uh, you know, I, I also saw, read, and I didn't know this either, is that he didn't use, like, studio musicians. He always used, or um, excuse me, he, he did always use studio musicians and not his band, which is kind of Nashville-y.
1: Yeah, it, it is, but, you know, he did... Um probably four or five albums into his career did bring the ace and the whole band in yeah. on, on a few songs um but yeah he he went to nashville and recorded with nashville musicians and you know he these first couple of albums straight country straight from the heart you know straight from the heart was the second one and not to deviate off you know the, the straight country but those were done by blake mevis ray baker did the third album who produced Merle Haggard and such back in the heyday. And then for this big long run from like 85 to almost 92, uh, up until the album just before Pure Country, you know, it was all Jimmy Bowen and it was all the same group of guys. Mm -hmm. So you see these first couple of albums by George, there's a bunch of different, you know, there's two or three different steel guitar players, a couple of different drummers. And it's you know interesting to hear how that sound from the first album you know till he kind of settled in on his
0: core guys with jimmy boy how that kind of changed just in three years you know three albums mm-hmm. yeah um you know another thing i like about this you know first debut album he'd come out there and what you're typically seeing at this time is all these country stars you know dressed up in these rhinestone nudie suits and stuff like that but he was just leaning up against the pole with his shirt and his cowboy hat on and, you know, it just kind of said, hey, look out, man, this is the real deal. Yeah,
1: that that back album cover where he's leaning up against, you know, the wall, like you're yeah. talking about that, you know, cigarette machine and, and the Lone Star sign and everything, that's that's the front bar at Green Hall. Right. And, you know, you have a guy from 1976, I think, he did his first gig at Cheatham Street Warehouse with the Ace and the Hole Band, and which is an amazing story as well. You know, Tommy Foot, Mike Daly and those guys, you know, were, you know, playing around Texas and and they put up a you know, their lead singer left and they you know, they put up a note in the you know at, at, at back then Southwest Texas State University, right. you know, uh-huh. they put a note up at the school saying, Hey, Ace and the whole band looking for a lead singer and, you know, this this cowboy shows up and he goes, Hey man, I sing and you know and and what a great story there. And they did their first show together in nineteen seventy six at Cheatham Street Warehouse. You know, so it especially being based here in Austin, you know, just to have it yeah. all get started just, you know, twenty miles you know, south of Austin at Cheatham Street, which is still open. Yes, it you is. Know, and he played Green Hall, and he played Broken Spoke, and he played all these, Luke and Bach, he played all these legendary, you know, dance halls, you know, in this central Texas, you know, the hill country part of Texas, and it all got started here. Yeah,
0: no doubt. No doubt. All right, so uh, here's what I'd like to say, is that um, I've got a question. So we're going to have the quiz section here. You ready? Quiz right. for this album. And I don't no telling. These are gonna be multiple choice quizzes, <laughs> right. okay? Um, so, who got the most songwriting credits on this record? Was it A. Frank Dykus, D. I mean B. Dean Dillon, or C. George Strait? Well, definitely wasn't George. Um, you can look at your notes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it's, it was either.
1: Uh, if I look at my notes and go down, it's it's either Frank or Dean, um, and probably Frank on this one. Um, or the Dean, you know what I didn't? It's it's
0: actually Dean, it's Dean Dillon.
1: Yeah, they wrote so many of these together, and you know that's really when when I heard Dean Dillon as a songwriter. You know he wrote Tennessee Whiskey, and David Allan Coe cut it in like nineteen seventy eight, seventy nine. Before that, um, Dean was trying to get a record deal on his own. He ended up doing a couple of duet albums with Gary Stewart, mm-hmm. um, who we're going to talk about later. Um, but, but you know George Jones didn't have the hit. Tennessee Whiskey was an album cut for David Allen Coe. Right. And then it wasn't until I think 83 that he had a hit with George Jones with Tennessee Whiskey. So this was really a first album that Dean really got a lot of recognition and got hit songs and, you know, me wanting to start writing songs and such. Hearing what Dean was writing and hearing what he was writing with Frank Dykus was very influential with me as a songwriter. And, you know, when it comes to country music, you know, Dean is definitely my favorite country songwriter okay, really? ever.
0: Yeah, for sure. Wow. Okay. Well, um, I I think that that you can accept that as a uh, successful yeah. <laughs> answer, even though I forgot I didn't mark down the answer. <laughs> it was one of two, just like you. That whole album was almost Frank and you know I mean, Dean's. It, so. it was, but Dean <laughs> I think Dean got more of them. Anyway, uh, I read this All Music uh, review, and let let me read it to you, a, a portion of it to you. At the time, country music was given over to lush country pop crossovers, aging outlaws, urban cowboy swagger, and the emergence of Alabama-styled country rock. But straight flew right in the face of these trends, drawing deep on honky-tonk tradition, um, undeniably rooted in Texas, but willing to wander outside of the state, the Lone Star State borders. Which is just, it gives me chills when I I read that kind of stuff, you know, Um, just how Texas he was. Yeah, he went, uh, it was probably 1978 or so when Kent Finley and Daryl
1: Stadler mm-hmm. brought him to, you know, Nashville, that famous story of them going in the the yellow van with the cots in the back and they were bringing Coors Banquet because you couldn't get Coors Banquet, you know, the Yellow Belly, you know, the, uh, that side of the Mississippi River and of course Smokey and the Bandit, which the whole story was. I was just going to tell you that. <laughs> yeah. The whole story is based Smokey around going Bandit. to get, you know, Coors Banquet beer and, uh, you know, so they brought up a bunch of Coors Banquet beer and shopped him around, you know, 1978 or so. And, um, you know, they all told him to take the cowboy hat off because this time in country music, it was Barbara Mandrell, mm-hmm. Crystal Gale, Sylvia, Gary Morris, um, T.G. Shepard, B.J. Thomas, who I worked with for eight years, and it was uh, Lee Greenwood. It was all real contemporary-sounding country music. You know, country always is it's cyclical. There'll be these five or six, seven years of more... Uh, traditional-sounding country, then it cycles back around to where it's more contemporary-sounding, and that goes back to Patsy Cline and Ray Price and, you know, decades before George came out. But it's always had that cyclical thing. And, um, you know, so to come out, they told him to take the cowboy hat off, and he's like, no, you know. and, And he's the real deal, too. He's not just some guy that throws on starts jeans and threw on a cowboy hat. He grew up on a ranch. He rodeos. He still rodeos and team ropes and everything. So he was the real deal. Yeah, And to have him, you know, come in... In the middle of of those real contemporary sounding artists was was a big change. Yeah,
0: no doubt. Uh, tell me this. So I know you picked it, but I'm st- I'm still not under, fully clear on why. For me, it's because I was that was my
1: intro and everybody's intro, but to George Strait, okay, and and also to Dean Dillon as a songwriter. So from a songwriter standpoint, that was very influential. You know, in high school when these re- you know these first albums came out to hear hear this guy Dean Dillon yeah and um you know to hear his writing and you know and read the other I was always a, a liner notes reader anyway yeah you know the musicians the producers the studios you know that the whole nine yards that was always something I was interested in because I wanted to be in the music business from a very young age so right. um but you know you could go and go well does Fort Worth ever cross your mind you know I I think there are some some George Strait albums that you could argue are, are much better, but this first one, talking about what influenced me and how it influenced
0: me, it's that first one. Awesome. See, I love hearing that stuff. That's, that's the whole reason I love to do this podcast. Um, but that's great. Yeah, I know. I mean, <clears throat> such, such a killer album, and I agree. You know, he's had so many hits, you know, but I just think it's kind of a, a cop-out if you, if you say, you know, greatest hits... Or the anthology, yeah. the box set—you can't do that. That's not fair.
1: No, and that's one thing. And you and I had talked about this, you know. And and I didn't, even though, I mean we'll get on this Frank Sinatra thing. It is—it is his hits, but it was you know recorded all in one night, live re—you know, re-recorded of you know not studio versions, but you know I didn't want to pick a greatest hits because to me that's you know of the studio recordings because that's picking the best of multiple albums, and you know this is one album. Top to bottom, listening to it, and you know what's even cooler too is, you know, I moved to Nashville in '92 and started writing songs and getting into to the music business and such, and you know through the years, you know, it's like Buddy Spiker played, you know, fiddle on on this album.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: For years, I had a Western Swing band in Nashville, okay. and Buddy would come out and play in my Western Swing band. Um, Mike Leach on bass. You know, I got to know Mike really well you know, through B.J. Thomas. And I look at these musicians that played on these and the ones that I become friends with and and such. It was really cool to revisit some of these and go, man, I forgot Mike played bass on that. And, you know, know, Mike and I became really close. And, you know, he played on Drift Away. He played on Suspicious Minds, Elvis, you know, Son of a Preacher Man and, you know, Sweet Caroline and all these great albums. And you go look at, here's this young kid from Texas, comes in and has this powerhouse bass player that had played with elvis yeah. and dusty springfield and all these people and of course mike played on hooked on a feeling for bj and all these big records out of memphis mm-hmm. and uh you know here he is playing on george Strait's record and you know jimmy capps you know just passed away last year unfortunately right. part of the grand old opry band you know i've played the opry a lot of times with artists you know playing guitar and jimmy standing back there on you know, playing acoustic and yeah. such And so
0: to get to meet these guys and um, Just epic, man That's so great Yeah, to
1: become friends well, with them
0: Well, you you just mentioned Frank Sinatra Let's talk about uh, Live at the Sands Now, this was uh, I, I really enjoyed listening to this album I mean, mainly because It was in 1966, right? Uh, I think it was his first live album And it was recorded with the Count Basie And his orchestra Um... Quick quiz question. Go ahead. And and conducted
1: by Quincy Jones.
0: And that was quiz question. Who conducted and arranged (laughs) this record? A. Phil Spector. (laughs) B. Quincy Jones. C. Jerry Wexler. Wexler.
1: (laughs) Well, there you go. It's Quincy Jones.
0: (laughs) Very good. Did you see that, everybody? He he actually (laughs) told me the answer before I asked the question. (laughs) Damn it. Okay, talk to me. I mean, he's he definitely wanted to be a comedian. On some of those those the, those little monologues he would go on. Oh yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah at the very beginning, it's like, how do uh, how did every how did all you guys get into my
0: room, you know? And everybody's
1: laughing, and and uh, you know at the beginning of Fly Me to the Moon. He goes, "This guy's going to keep me
0: on beat and yeah, in, well, in time." About, about uh, <laughs> Dean Martin being an alcoholic, he's the best worst drunk I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, and
1: <laughs> and to hear, yeah, I don't care what anybody says, nobody could swing like Count Basie's orchestra. You know that's fair. Duke Ellington, love, respect Duke, but he just did not. His bands never swung like Basie did, and there was just a, something a little bit different, especially when he had, you know, Sonny Payne on drums. And I know you had Chris Layton on your podcast. Uh-huh. I was, I texted Chris the other night, a, uh, a live version uh, it was the Basie Orchestra by themselves live in Paris, in 1967, doing a song called Corner Pocket and has Sonny Payne on drums. and it's absolute magical. It is so magical watching that band play and watching you know Sonny behind the drum kit. I sent it over yeah. to Chris. I'm like, man, just check out Sonny and his moves. <laughs> you know back then too, um, in especially like the Dine of Washington and Count Basie and all, all that era and such, you know drums and bass weren't the rhythm section. Mm-mm. It was Freddie Green on arch top guitar. You know, so his archtop guitar and bass were really the rhythm section, and you had guys like Sonny Payne, and later on Duffy Jackson, all these great jazz drummers. They played the horn licks, they played the horn punches, huh. and and was were really featured more than just the rhythm section. And you go back and listen to this album with Sonny Payne and such, and listen to the horn, you know, listen to the horn sections, okay. and. You know he's hitting those horn punches and such, and that was that was a really cool thing about that, you know that style of music to see a drummer that's really more of a featured instrumentalist than just standing back there just swinging the shit out of the All beat time. like he did, but then come in and hit these, you know these big horn sections like "Fly Me to the Moon," Da 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 da. Yeah, he's he's hitting those horn punches and such, and hear that work and hear Freddie Green when they when they you know, break the band down, you just hear him chunking that arch top, to chink, right. chink, 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 just carrying that bass. And, you know, you hear these guys go out on stage in Vegas and from top to bottom in an hour and a half play all these songs perfectly. Yeah. And the dynamics and, you know, the arrangements that Quincy did, you know, he wrote that really famous, you know, uh, arrangement of Fly Me to the Moon. Okay. And And a lot of people don't realize that he was an amazing arranger, and they go, oh, yeah, you know, there's and the Thriller album and We Are the World and all that cool stuff, but, you know, he was in the thick, you know, of writing these arrangements, writing these notes for these horn players and in these sections to play, and some of those licks and some of those arrangements are just as important as the melody and the lyrics.
0: Uh, yeah, no doubt, but, you know, I mean, you've given a lot of props to old Count Basie, but what about... What about, what about Frank?
1: Well, of course Frank. I, I mean, mean you know, Frank
0: could sing the phone book. Yeah. But, I mean.
1: you know, what, what influenced me most, you know, influence-wise, was just hearing a big band of, you know, he's probably had, you know, 16 horns or something like that. And, you know, there's 25, you know, people on stage playing these incredible arrangements yeah and the dynamics as a band and how they play off of each other and the solos you know on the sax and trumpet and trombone solos and these guys are absolutely amazing you know musicians it's it's easy to go oh there's frank sitting in the you know standing up front being frank singing his ass off but behind is where the
0: real show is to me yeah uh i see you know a lot of us frank didn't write a lot of songs no he didn't write anything yeah but um you know, being a songwriter, I always I always look at that, and that's why a lot of these questions are going to be about the songwriting with
1: you. Um, but, you know, when you have the songwriters, you know, Cole Porter and all these guys that were bringing songs to Frank, hell, why? Why? Yeah. Why I try to sit down and write something that these guys, you know, that's, that's what they do.
0: So, well, let's – I love it. Well, actually, you know what? Before we move on, and I've got a good segue for this, but before we move on, to, when did this – influence you when was this the the or why was it is it because of your love of frank and the the, the orchestra or is it is, did it do something else to you you know i wanted to play trumpet since i can
1: remember you know my dad listened to frank sinatra and and a lot of a lot of artists that had big bands behind him you know he, right he loved engelbert humperdinck he loved frank sinatra he loved that you know type of of sound and they always had really big bands with horn sections and such and i wanted to play trumpet yeah and you know so i i listen you know i would hear him play these albums and i was just mesmerized by the orchestra
0: especially the trumpet guys after we get done here i want to play you a cut off the new record that we're going to release here soon there there there's a potential trumpet part and so, if so, then I'm, I want to hire you to, to do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. that's Ooh, last time
1: I heard that, it was B.J. Thomas, and I ended up playing uh, uh, trumpet on a B.J. and Willie Nelson duet. Nice. With, with Wayne Jackson. I was so nervous in the studio. Wayne's like, hey, man, who played this part with me. I'm like, oh, Jesus, this is Wayne Jackson, who played on Soul Man, <laughs> who played the dun-dun-dun right. on Sweet Caroline, right. who played on Roll With It for Steve Winwood and all this stuff. I'm like, "Woo!"
0: Yeah, we'll have to... Yeah. We'll talk okay, about well, that. Okay. Well, so my segue, my segue <laughs> is um, around Quincy Quincy Jones. Now you know he was also involved with uh, Dinah Washington. Yes. Uh, so this album came out. Um, the Swingin' Miss D came out in 1957. Oh, she only lived to be 39, I believe. Yeah, I was married six times. <laughs> I mean, I she she packed a lot in, you know. And I read her
1: biography, which is really cool. I read the. Quincy Jones' biography, Q, is the best music
0: biography I've ever okay. read, by the way. so um, I, um, I need to get it. Uh, well, so this album was arranged by by Quincy, and um, I love how she self-proclaimed herself the queen of the blues. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, she seems to be a very arrogant woman, and I don't mind <laughs> at all. You know, they had to be really strong back then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know,
1: and especially in the, you know, the 1950s and, you know, the, the jazz magazines back then with her and Ella Fitzgerald, um, those are, I think those are probably my two favorite female vocalists ever. Okay. And, you know, they were not, you know, skinny ladies and, you know, they were, they were blasted in the jazz magazines, you know, for being plus size and such. And, you know, so they had to have a a, a hard shell, and that really affected Dinah a lot. She she took diet pills, which, you know, really um, hurt her health. And yeah. in the end was really one of the, the factors. One, yeah, one of the factors. And, you know, so they, they had to be tough. It's, you know, you're, you're a lady in the 50s, you're African American, you're traveling around to all these clubs and with a bunch of men. And you you had to be tough. Yeah, And you had to be able to
0: stand up for yourself. Bitch, I'm the queen of the blues. Damn straight. (laughs) Don't mess with me. Okay. Well, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1993. See, like, I I don't like to do that as a quiz question. That's just, that's a a little bit, you know, too detailed. But I do have a quiz question. I have a couple quiz questions about Dinah for you. Uh, In what state was Dinah Washington born? Was it A, Alabama, B, Georgia, or C, Mississippi I
1: think it was Georgia
0: No, nope. No, it was Tulsa Mississippi after I told <laughs> you I read her biography too <laughs> Well, I, that's actually not very This should be about the, the actual album <laughs> um, But uh, I love how Tony Bennett said about her uh, She'd come to town with two suitcases to Vegas i uh, would come to town with two suitcases And no shows booked And stay as long as she wanted And when everyone heard she was in town they showed up, and the shows were packed. <laughs> you know, her voice,
1: you know, when, when she first started, you know, singing, um, there wasn't PA systems, and so they had to sing, or they weren't very common. So they had to sing over top of the horns and the drums and such, and, you know, you when you go listen to her attack and her delivery, it's and, like a brass instrument.
0: And her, her, her the diction and the, the clarity of her, yes. her
1: vocal and she can get right up on the mic and and sing really soft, so soft and so close to the mic that you can, you know, hear, you know, the saliva in her mouth when she moves her tongue and these things that, yeah. you know, it just makes it, gives it soul. You know, nowadays they, they take and go, you know, cut that out in Pro Tools. It's like, oh, we don't want to no. hear a breath. We no. don't want to hear a no. smack. And that to me, that was always the soul. But, you know, and then in those big parts on the albums, like, you know, Perdido on this album, mm-hmm. she... Starts singing so loud, and you know, they were using Neumann U47 on her, which is a ribbon mic. Yep. And she actually, you can hear certain parts when she really digs into it and gets loud that she's overdriving the mic, that ribbon yeah. on the mic, and okay, very powerful.
0: Quiz question What was Dinah Washington's born name? <laughs> was it a Jackie Lee Jones? B, Sassy Sue Jones, or C, Ruth Lee Jones?
1: Ruth Lee Jones.
0: Very nice, Mitch. Well, Very she nice. was sassy. <laughs> I, when I wrote that down, I was like, that's not a, a given name, Sassy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of people that, uh, you know, there may be some people
1: listening and go, man, I don't I don't know who died in Washington is. And...
0: I didn't. But, And I, I would like to say thank you because it just, it, it put me in this mood. It's like, you know, the... the there's certain times that you want to listen to this record, you know, just when you're mellowing out, maybe with a glass of wine, or yeah. you, know, you know, maybe you're with your girl, or whatever it is. Um, but you know, it just it kind of it just kind of took me someplace else. It's it is incredibly
1: special, and you know, the, she shows off such a a big array of you know her vocal talents. You know, listen to "Never Let Me Go." She is singing so soft, and the the tone and the diction is so perfect because they didn't mm-hmm. go punch in. If, right back then if if you sang a, a note wrong you had to start from the top again and to hear her that's such perfection but a lot of people will know double tree hotels probably five six years ago for several years had a had a big ad campaign that had a song called relax max okay and that's this actual version from this album that really double tree
0: hotels used for that uh, for that ad campaign so You know what I'm loving about this podcast is you know so much about this stuff. It's kind of like with Mike Flanagan. I just shut up and let let somebody else talk. (laughs) I love hearing all this. You're just like an encyclopedia of this stuff. Um, So thank you for turning me on this album as well as this next one that I want to talk to you about. Uh, Gary Stewart, Out of Hand. I mean, wow. I mean, I was just like, oh, this is it. Um, you know, I heard, you know, it's it was the second album. It was, uh, you know, it reached number six on the Billboard Country chart. But, um, you know, it, it it's just like it, it, it really kind of hit me in the gut when I when I listened to it. it. I heard a lot of Graham Parsons in it, but that I guess, uh, yeah, Graham came before him. So I don't, I don't know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He did.
0: Yeah. So, uh, anyway, you know. <clears throat> That whole kind of rolling and rolling stone says, uh, with with uh, uh like Stewart around the honky tonk rockabilly may not be dead yet. All music said indispensable for roots music country fans of any type. And Time magazine called him the current king of honky tonk. It is, it's a straight beer joint,
1: beer drinking, cigarette smoking back in the day, honky tonk album. Uh, it, to me, it is the quintessential just honky-tonk album. Yeah.
0: No, definitely. And, I mean, Bill Bill Malone said one of the greatest honky-tonk country albums ever produced. Yeah. Or ever recorded, excuse me. Um, so, uh, okay. Yeah, so talk to me about this album. What do you... What, what, well, you know, what it's, it, for you? it was released in
1: 1975, and mm-hmm. I remember as a kid, you know, I was six years old, and my mom absolutely loved this album, and so did my older sister, and just... Played it over and over, and I just loved the sound. You know, he's he's got a passion. You can hear hurt in his voice. You that can vibrato. hear, you can hear party in his voice. You can hear beer drinking, hell raising in his voice. And and um, you know, that was just a, his vocal style is to me was the absolute best honky tonk voice. You know, you can look at at guys that did more dance hall music like Johnny Bush, who's Phenomenal. But I, I consider that kind of dance hall music. Very, okay. And, you know, that shuffle type thing and such. This is beer drinking, hell raising, honky that tonk. That kind of what defines honky tonk, if you ask me. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the the crazy thing about this album is <clears throat> after they got, um, Roy Day produced it, and for some reason the two-inch tape, whether it was malicious or not, got thrown in a dumpster. Ooh. And they found the tapes in the dumpster and had to go out and roll them back on to the two-inch reel and to mix down to the to the master and such. And so, you know, that the original recordings, you know, were the first time they, they cut these was almost lost. Wow. You know, if the trash would have ran at a different time, there would have been a landfill in Nashville, and they'd have had to go in. <laughs> dig and, it up. <clears throat> dig it up and maybe not catch the emotion, you know, that yeah. that they did. But, you know, I moved to, like I said earlier, I moved to Nashville in 92, and I, I met a guy um, – named Herschel Wiggington, mm-hmm. who was on okay. he was Hee Haw. And he was one of the background singers, and he really became my Nashville dad. And oh, he told cool. my parents nice. that, and my parents loved Herschel,
0: <clears throat>
1: and uh, got to be really good friends with his sons, one of my best friends. And, you know, Herschel sang on this, and Herschel was a dear friend. And when uh, he passed away a few years ago, and back in the 60s, 70s, whenever a, a musician, a background singer or something would sing on a hit song, they would get a a certificate from um from, Neris, from the Grammys. You know, it's called a Super, okay. super yeah. Picker Award. And his son gave me his uh, 1975 Super Picker Award. So I have that award from, you know, the year that he sang on this album, Background Vocals, and that's, right. you know, sitting in my office. That's cool. and uh, That's really in, cool. In here in Austin. And, you know, I got to be really good friends with, you know, Wayne Carson, who wrote, yeah, you know, um, she's acting single. I'm drinking double and drinking thing. And
0: I mean that—that's that, kind of where you know you really get into it about about him. I mean, what—that's a- like. I mean, that what it's a drinking thing uh, out of hand. It's like there's all they're all about sorrow or getting loaded.
1: Yeah, and and you know, listen to those lyrics. Like she's acting single. I'm drinking doubles. You know, in the chorus, you know, it says my heart's breaking. My yep. heart is my heart is breaking like the tiny bubbles. She's acting single. Like, look, I'm drinking, I'm drinking doubles. doubles. I'm like, well, holy hell! How,
0: yeah, how did you come you up know, with that?
1: I've got this drinking thing to keep from thinking things about where you've been, you know, who you've been with, and what you've done. I'm like, wow, that's yeah. You know, and Wayne wrote all that stuff by himself. You know, Wayne also was a co-writer on "You Were Always on My Mind" by Willie. You know, uh-huh. Elvis cut it first. Uh, he also wrote the letter for the Box Tops <clears throat> and. You know Wayne had an incredible career. He also did Whiskey Trip and Quits. Um, I see the Want to in Your Eyes that Gary all, uh, you know, cut as well. Conway had the bigger hit with I See the Want to in Your Eyes, but you know Wayne Carson knew how to write some honky tonk. So you know
0: what I'm going to do? I'm going to take that rock and roll. I mean that country music encyclopedia and just throw it in the trash. I'm just going to call you <laughs> when I need questions. When I have questions. Is that you okay with that yeah for sure and, <laughs> okay you know,
1: it, it, and real quick too i don't want to talk too long but you know you go at go back to you know wanting to be in the music business and hearing these albums and moving to nashville you know ended up being you know really good friends with john huey who played steel on it you yeah. know bob moore who played bass you know bob played on bridge over troubled waters mm-hmm. you know he's he's the kickoff on the bass of king of the road and you know ray, ray Edenton and You know reggie young reggie actually handed me he handed me one of his guitars one time in the studio and i played it and he goes that's guitar i played on drift away and i played on drinking thing and all this you know i got to play these these instruments and such so it was even you know even a cooler connection already you know loving that album
0: yeah no that's 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 really awesome but i do have a quiz question for you and this one's around songwriting um how many um how many songs did Gary get writing credit for on this record? Is it A one, B three, or C five? One cheater. <laughs> 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 he's looking at his notes. <laughs> he came over with all these. Like, oh, uh, you busted! Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, so yeah,
1: Gary didn't. He didn't uh, cut up a bunch of his own stuff until later albums and there was some stuff that he wrote with dean Dillon as well oh really that i bet you those were awesome yeah i mean well gare uh gary and dean uh wrote an empty glass really which is a honky-tonk standard mike and the moon pies just recut it uh-huh. with um bruce Robinson on his next waltz what was even cooler is they cut the original version the it, the words are just a little bit different and when from the time that gary and dean wrote the song to the time gary went in the studio and recorded it they had tweaked the lyrics some so the lyrics are different so go go check out Mike and the Moon Pies doing uh they did the original version they did the original oh, okay, version cool. and i have dean uh, i have um gary's original
0: demo of that too i want to I wanna get more, mike you know? on on this podcast i think he would have a blast oh man he yeah
1: he and i love getting together we go to devil's backbone tavern and crack open a beer and play gary
0: stewart on the jukebox and we sit and talk about honky tonk <laughs> oh, okay. love that guy all right i might need you to make me an introduction you got it uh so tell me about the first time you heard this album. I mean, so this came out in 76, you're eight. It came out in 75, I was
1: six years oh, old. Yeah, came out sorry. in 75, and, you know, I I heard it from, you know, yeah. my mom and my, my sister Lisa, who's eight years older than me, they were wearing it out in the car, and you know, we had the eight-track tape. <laughs> yeah. Love the eight. You tracks. know, it's always hated that because it always seemed to change tracks right in the middle of your favorite yeah, song. You know? Right there. She's it was acting single. <laughs> <laughs> acting.
0: I'm drinking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, come on. Oh, that's great. Okay. So yeah, I mean this that sounds like an album that like basically was pushed on you and then you were like, oh, This is really that was probably one of the influential, most influential things on you to really kind of push you to be a musician, no?
1: Oh yeah, for sure. And you know, I I I still that is a go to, that is a go to album.
0: It's another kind thing. of mood thing. Yeah, it's kind of like sometimes when I I just I call it like a Willie or a Merle mood. When I mm-hmm. I just I just need a little Merle. Yeah, you know, it makes you want to. I just need that vocal, and I and I and I want to go to the honky tonk and drink beer and
1: want to belly up to the bar and <laughs> sit there and drink long necks and. You know it's, That's what How it, a that's what it beer, is That's right My mom always used to say My mom's like
0: When I hear Gary
1: Stewart It makes me just want to Drink a beer like,
0: <laughs> Yeah it does Me too <laughs> Alright That is great uh, Yeah well the Rolling Stone um, 2020 Rolling Stone Put it number 25 In of 50 top country albums Of all time Good choice I And I'd never listened to it So thank you Alright Now you ready for this? Oh yeah Let's talk about ACDC Back in Black from 1980 It was their seventh studio album um, So I told you earlier I asked you earlier Have you ever heard of the Hit Parade podcast? It's done by Slate uh, It's a guy named Chris uh, M- uh, Malamphy. I think that's how you pronounce it uh, But he came up with this ACDC rule and the, the, the gist of it is When a band comes out with an album That is, you know, a truly classic album and might have sold, like, billions of copies Or whatever it is That, you know, that whole slow rise Of that of that record Basically ensued their next record When they came out Shot to number one So he, ha- he mentions, you know, quite a few people That have done it You know, Jackson Brown Was, like, with Running On Empty um, Pat Benatar, Jimi Hendrix you know, he says. You know, I mean, Prince was another one. You know, yeah. controversy wasn't a huge album, right? Um, Jimi Hendrix. So, what's what's the album you think of? What 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 do you think about which one went into number one? Oh, uh, with Jimi Hendrix, probably. Are you experienced? See, that's what everybody thinks. Yeah, it's really Electric Ladyland. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so the Carol Kane when she did Tapestry, and then at, it's the exact same thing happened for her. Uh, Van Halen. This is another great one that's very much like ACDC in the sense that uh you know David Lee Roth they had this killer album 1984 right and it was like it i think that's really when Van Halen just really came into that's where they were you know they were the top of their game and then Dave left Sammy came in the red rocker old diamond dave's out uh red rocker comes in and they nailed number 1 album yeah 2814 you know and he he brought you know Sammy really brought the
1: songwriting you know, he brought a lot better songwriting, and not to veer from these five albums we're talking about, but just better songs. You know, you know, one of the problems, you know, Dave wanted to do a bunch of cover songs, and, and you know, the rest of the guy's are like, nope. And, yeah, then and Sammy, maybe, Sammy comes in with
0: great songs. Then there was the whole, like, when they got together at, like, the music awards, and Dave just sticks his foot in his ass. <laughs> 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 oh, man. Yeah, so... Yeah, so I mean, the definition is you know, it's a truly classic album that uh, next release, the album shoots to the top, even though it might be as mediocre than the the, the one, the predecessor. So, but yeah, so, the, and so this is also very similar to, you know, the change of, of lead singers to what ACDC went through and their yeah. um, first number one album. First album with, with Brian
1: Johnson, lead uh-huh. vocals after Bon Scott passed away. First album, I believe, with Mutt Lang. Yes. You know, and, and a lot of people didn't know who Mutt Lang was until, you know, the public, until Shania Twain. And that was really because they got married and that was all in the press. And like, hey, who's this Mutt Lang guy? Oh, my goodness, look Wait at who he as he's worked <laughs> with. He did that, he did this, he did that. And, you know, but the, the thing, what hit me in the face with Back in Black was, Angus and Malcolm on guitars. Mm-hmm. And you know my sister Lisa that I was just talking about, she gave me Back in Black for Christmas 1980. Nice. And I listened to that album over and over. I mean, I would listen to records so much growing up that my mom, you know, she carried multiple needles in the junk drawer <laughs> because I would just I would run through the needles. <laughs> and um so it was, you know, not going to the store and grabbing another one. Here's here's a five pack I mean, in I'm the not, Yeah, yeah <laughs> five, five pack <laughs> in the junk drawer. <laughs> Um, but you know, when I heard those guitars, they are so fat and I'm like, well,
0: I want to play rock guitar now. Uh, yes, you did. And you know, I, I would even throw AC/DC up there with, you know, the, the amount of legendary riffs that they came out with. I mean, they, I'm not going to say they, they, they're, they're better, but they rival Keith Richards. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it is like, I mean, they're just like, you know, I believe that there's certain, like, you know, I believe, you know, I, I always say top three vocals that you hear one one word, one note, and you're like, okay, that's Willie. Yep. Okay, that's Frank Sinatra. That's another one that I, I did. That's Mick Jagger, you know. The, but, you know, I feel like you could do, like, the same thing with that kind of riff thing. Um, so, you know, you can't really say that Keith Richards is the you can tell him on one note. You could say, well, yeah, you could tell uh, Dire Straits on one note. But it's, this is, it's yet another three. I just don't know how I'm going to define it yet. I loved on the vinyl of
1: Back in Black. You know, it's a different, you know, when you go listen to the CD and obviously streaming. But, you know, You Shook Me All Night Long has a cold ending, you know, you know dun, 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 dun. And then it immediately goes into, have a drink on me. Yeah, and that guitar lick. You know, you go from you know the iconic yeah. "You shook me all night long" intro into the intro of "of Have a drink on me," and they didn't put any really any space in there, and it it's almost like it's one song, and it's iconic riffs like you were talking about. You know, you can play any guitar player that bro down.
0: Yeah, two
1: notes, and they're gonna be like, "Let's have a drink on
0: me." Yeah. It, you know, it's all about a lot about tone and stuff like that, too. But great uh, guitar tones, and uh, I love so how you have good. an SG sitting, uh, yeah. you know, on the wall, yeah. hanging on the wall here. And well, here. I have my uh, my little schoolboy outfit inside if you want to see me <laughs> dress up in it. Uh, no, thanks. <laughs> sure, I look good. <laughs> um, no, I do have that SG, I, I don't really play that guitar very much. Um, I, this is the, I play the telly, that's kind of I'm not uh, I'm, the, I'm the singer and the songwriter, so yep. I just got to play the rhythm on it. Uh, but yeah, so it's like, I mean, and I mean, I, I I remember in high school when I was, like when I was a junior in high school and going around the locker room and and, and like when, even when I was a sophomore, so that would be like '87, you know, going in, maybe even '86. It doesn't matter. Um, going through the locker room, you know, before practice and stuff, and the the, the older guys were just cranking back in black, the album, and I was just like, ah, oh, feel so. T-. I mean, it really pumped me up. Oh, it does, you know, and from. From top to bottom, I mean, there's
1: there's not a dog on that list, you know. Every now and then you get you know, you, a lot of albums, you go, yeah, I could skip that song. Uh, but this one, top to bottom, it's, you know, just iconic lick after lick and great songs and, you know, rock and roll ain't noise pollution. We <laughs> all wanted to scream that at the top of our lungs and for our parents to hear when we were in high school, junior <laughs>
0: high. Uh, yeah. I Turn mean, that guitar I, down. You know how many times I, I heard shoot that. Shoot to thrill, Hell's bells. Oh yeah. Um, I I, lo- I love how how like vulgar they are. Like you know, I mean, there's it's 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 sex and getting drunk. And, oh yeah. And it's like put, let me put <laughs> my love into you. <laughs> yeah right <laughs> you, sh- you, know, you shook me all night long. have a drink on me shake a leg and then i, mean, I just love the intro when when uh johnson is just sitting there kind of talking and sm- taking off a smoke saying yeah, yeah. and just talking just, oh yeah on a studio album awesome
1: and and mutlang really knew how to capture guitars yes. on tape and, and he make was really them picky fat he was very picky and but you listened you know what he did with You know, with with ACDC and a a dear friend of mine, Dave Thoner, was a recording and mixing engineer on the next album um, for those about to rock Mm -hmm. and worked with Mutt and, you know, to hear how he and I talked a lot about how Mutt would do guitars. And he was, you know, you go listen to Def Leppard, those early albums and such when he, you know, he just knew how
0: to to get great guitar tones on tape. One thing that Brian Johnson had said was that, I quote this, Uh, It was like, again, Brian, again, hold on. You sang that note too long. There's no room for a breath. He wouldn't let me, uh, he wouldn't let anything go past him. He had this thing where he didn't want people to listen to the album down the road and say there was no way someone could sing like that. They've dropped that in. Even the breaths had to be in the right place, and you could not knock a man for, but he drove me nuts, and I'd be sitting there going, argh. You're Right, <laughs> so I mean, he's just like, nope, nope, do it again, do it again, you, do it again. You got gotta leave pace for breath. Yeah, and and I've heard
1: stories too that you know, on the Def Leppard stuff and such, he would have, um, yeah, he, he would do, have those do guys he, play. He'd w- photograph one. Yes, he did. Uh, and he would do. That's my first concert. He would have the guitar players, you know, Steve and Phil and such, and Def Leppard play one note and then another note, and and he would mix the power chord.
0: Whoa. So it's it's been... a produced album, huh? Right. <laughs> uh yeah, so well back to yeah, that's that's crazy. Yeah. Um okay, question. Bond Scott Brian Johnson. Man, that's a tough one. It's but like Dave or Sammy.
1: Yeah, I I got to go with Brian. Okay. You know, I I love Bond as well. I mean, that is oh, that's such almost a tie, but
0: that's that's really that's a really tough one. <laughs> uh do you remember that movie Airheads when he opens up the door and he goes, "Okay, who? <laughs> well, it was like David or Sammy, and she's like, "No." And he's like, "Wrong, though. wrong." Well, <laughs> <Yeah, right. laughs> they're both great. Um, yeah, I mean, well, this album—I mean, back to the back to the the, the ac rule. You know, it peaked at number seventeen in the states and number eight in in England, but that next album just whoom, right up to the top. And, and you know, till you look
1: at Back in Black, it is Today to date, sold. 25 million copies worldwide.
0: Yeah, I just like and, the, I like I, I love the rule because it's basically that's a, such a great example of it too. It's like you know they they have this iconic album. I mean, everybody knows at least five songs of this. Yeah, could hear the first the first riff and they go, oh, that's Back in Black. Oh, that's Hell's Belt. That's you know, and it's such a legendary classic classic album. And then the next one, you know, there's a couple hits, but you. These are the ones you know. That's you know. I think
1: every artist has every band has that one album that it's the absolute best piece of work, top to bottom, that they ever did. And that's with George Strait. That's with Frank Sinatra. That's with all the ones that we've talked about, and Van Halen, and 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 such. But in Back in Black, to me, is that one. You know,
0: that's that's the one for ACDC. Okay. Uh, I you know I, I can agree with you, but you know I still love some of those Bon Scott albums.
1: Oh yeah, Dirty Deeds and you know TNT. You know those are
0: great, great yeah, songs. I love his vocal too, but it, it's just a different thing, you know. And I like his rowdy ways too.
1: Well, and you know they did a great job of having Brian Johnson come in because it wasn't a real left turn. You know, there's there's a big difference in Diamond Dave and Sammy Hagar and their vocals. Yeah, you know Bon Scott and, and Brian still Johnson, same, Johnson both same just, attitude,
0: same same zone. Yeah, it's like, you know, they just drank a bottle of scotch and smoked four (laughs) packs of cigarettes, now let's cut a vocal. (laughs) Well, hold on, give me some cocaine first. (laughs) Sandpaper. (laughs) Oh, yeah. All right, so quiz question. Ding, ding, ding. You ready for this one? Uh, What three members of the band wrote all the songs on Black and Black? Angus, Malcolm, Brian Johnson, Phil Rudd, Cliff Williams. So it would be... Angus, Malcolm, and Brian. You're nailing it, dude. You're nailing it. This is my songwriting hero right here. <laughs> Mitch Ballard, everybody. And notice my <laughs> notes are a, a, far away from me now. You caught you me know, on that one last you time. You nailed it. So when, we, when I record with AJ Vallejo, he's, we always build a drum track. That's mm-hmm. how we, this is the process that we would go through. We would build a drum track with Phil Rudd's drums. So we would take the bass here, put it here. This, all Phil Rudd. Just, and because he was like, oh, it's just so loud and so thick.
1: And it is, when you go see, you know, I went and saw ACDC, well, over a decade ago. And, you know, with all the original lineup. And, you know, you watch Malcolm and you watch, you know, Phil. Mm-hmm. Phil gets up there and he just... It's just straightforward four-four rock drums. Yeah, and just beat the shit out of them, and just and make that, them that, loud. That, that kick drum, it's just like, poof, poof. it's like so thick. That's the epitome of a rock drummer. Get yes. up there and just have it in your face. And then Malcolm comes in with his, you know, big fat rhythm guitar. And that was best rhythm. You know, that rhythm section was amazing. Yeah,
0: no, that I, it's, it's so good. Uh, yeah, I've. I, you know, the thing is is that I've never really truly got into ACDC But I, I, I just love hearing it. It's like the same thing You know, I've never really gone do- Dove deep into Leonard Skynyrd But I love everything they do Yeah Um, But, yeah So, w- what else? So, th- this I mean, I could tell you why this album Would be on my top five But now it's kind of just the memory of me Walking through the football locker room But why this one for you? For me, it goes back to the guitars Okay
1: You know, I, I was... Wanting to play guitar and and you know, I'd I'd listened um we really two things and they're really different, but I'd listened um, you know, to the intro of Pretty Woman. Mm-hmm. You know, Roy Orbison. I'm like, Man, that sounds really cool, you know, the guitar. Yeah. And then I hear Back in Black and hear the guitars in your face, I'm like, I want to play guitar. Yeah. And that that well, just uh, and you know, I mean, the whole... I ran out, and got a distortion pedal. <laughs> you know, well, actually, I didn't start playing guitar till a year later. But you know, I, yeah. I got an electric guitar and amp, and a, and did a you distortion start with electric. Pedal. Yeah, I did. Well, my dad had a had an acoustic around the house, and that's why I learned kind of basics. Yeah, playing on his guitar. But GCD. the first guitar I ever owned was an electric guitar. What kind? Uh, it was a Kramer, mm-hmm. and I forget the the model. It was a it was a um, Stratocaster. Yeah, okay. you know shape, and then I had a Crate amp, and yeah. you know I remember Crate back then. All the rock and roll magazines, man, they spent a bunch of money on those full page ads for you know Crate amps, and so you had to have like one yeah, of yeah, and, and Kramer guitars as well. And um, no, 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 I had a Carvin. Sorry. Um, anyway, so I had a Kramer later, but you know I just I just love those big fat rock guitars, and so I'd, I wanted to learn those two note power chords and. Yeah, you know, my uh, this guy in that to,
0: in my last band, he was the other half of the band. Um, he he told me a story that when he was a kid and he started playing guitar, and you know, he's he like, you know, I want I want a Stratocaster, and so his dad said, okay, you know, for Christmas here's your Stratocaster, but it was a Squire, and he was all, oh, I want a Fender, <laughs> 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 just just from the from for the image portion of it.
1: Yeah, right. You know, but you always
0: gotta, you, you
1: know, you don't want to spend too much money on a on a kid's first guitar agree to see if they're serious about it Agreed. or not you don't want to you know you don't want to go spend eleven hundred dollars on a les paul and you know $1, a thousand bucks on a yeah on a you know vox ac 30 that you know will knock your head off oh you I, know I, but you, I
0: still have his his first amp because he's pretty much quit playing guitar yeah right yeah <laughs> i still have that uh my dad's guitar that i learned how to play on Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it was a 1972 Yamaha. I have have my dad's. So this is I got. This is from 1972. This uh, Les Paul is from 72. I have my dad's 1961 Gibson LG3. Oh, nice. Inside. Well, you got to show me that before I leave. Okay, it's it's under a bed. I just don't keep it out here. I'm afraid somebody's (laughs) going to. I don't blame you. I'll show you my 335. But anyway, anyway. (laughs) all right. So tell everybody where they can find you online. Do you have some Instagram handles Mm -hmm. or?
1: Yeah, so I'm Mitch underscore Ballard. And um you can find me on Instagram and um Insta, Facebook. Yeah, Facebook, it's Mitch Ballard. And you know, those are the main two that I use. I have Twitter, but I don't use it a lot. I don't use it either. Um, you know, really Instagram, especially now, um, you know, keeping up with, you know, the artist here in yeah. Texas, it's Instagram is it's kinda what best everybody's way. using, you know. Yeah, and I can see new releases. I can, you know, see their show posters and all those types of things, you know, because we're, you know, the BMI office here is a creative office, so, you know, we don't handle licensing, you know, or anything like that. It's strictly a creative office, and, you know, we support BMI affiliates, existing affiliates like yourself, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, look for new talent to affiliate with BMI and, you know, grow the BMI name. We just started a a BMI Texas uh, Spotify playlist.
0: Uh, I need to go check that out. Yep,
1: it launched on uh, March second, Texas Independence Day. What's it called? Uh, it's called the Texas Ten.
0: Texas, ooh. It's the
1: BMI Texas Ten. And right now we're ten doing number, it, number or, or spelled out, uh, spelled out. Okay. And so right now we're you know we're doing it once a month. It's featuring ten BMI uh, artists, you know, songwriters that um, have released new music in that month. Uh, we're hoping to go to every two weeks. Yeah. And um, but you know, we just launched it, and you know it's been. Amazing feedback, and to
0: be able to killer, dude, I love it.
1: Yeah, man, to be able to take these, you know, the artists here and and shed more light, you know, get more eyes on their and ears on their music and and such, and just you know ways that um, you know us being here, you know, day to day, you know, BMI's been coming back and forth to Austin since 1970, and our in our mm-hmm. conference room at uh, our office on South Congress, I have pictures from a music business conference we did in 1974. And the old black and white pictures and such. We have a long history here, but, you know, we're right at two years day-to-day. T- two um, years now. Okay. Yep. So, you know, March 2021 like right now. It's, it feels longer, you know, but I've gotten to know so many people. And Isn't it great?
0: It's, well, so I also listened to your On the Rise podcast. and um, Oh, and that was fun. I th- it was. That was a lot of was fun. It was cool. I learned a lot about you. Um, you want to tell the story about uh, who was at that first conference? So at the first conference, uh, 1974,
1: you know, there was, of course, Willie was there. Uh, we had Roger, Roger Sovine, who was one of the executives from BMI, was there. Francis Preston, um, who was our CEO for years, was there as well. Um, Doug Somm was there. And what, what
0: about somebody that spun off an awesome conference?
1: Well, that was in 1986. Oh, okay. <laughs> that so that in 1974, um, that was the one where Doug got up there and, You know, Willie and everybody's like, you know, Mike Tollison was there. In fact, that's where I got the pictures from was from Mike Tollison. Okay. And um, and Roger was telling me this story in 2019 at the BMI Country Dinner. You know, that's where we award the top 50 played, you know, BMI Songs of the Year Country. And um, the night before the CMA Awards. And I went up to Roger. He's such a legend. And I was just excited to meet him and introduce myself. He goes, man, I've heard... You know, I heard about you and you open up the Austin office, that's awesome. And you know, we've been going back and forth since the early seventies and and I told him that I had those pictures in the conference room. He goes, Oh, let me tell you something funny about that. He <laughs> goes, uh, everybody's like, Hey man, this is really great. BMI's down here and there was some record labels there and such and we're all happy to have everybody here. And he said Doug got up there and goes, Man, all you son of bitches need to go home. We don't want y'all here and <laughs> <laughs> and, he goes, that, and he goes, That was that was the headline or something in the statesman, uh, something I like love, that to I say All you Nashville guys go home. We don't want you down here. <laughs> Isn't that funny? That's but so you know, but uh in eighty six and um I didn't know about this, but I was doing some research for um for a presentation I was giving to all the executives after being down here for almost a year. And um, you know, we've been a sponsor at South by since since the mm-hmm. first year in eighty seven, but nineteen eighty six um, and I found this, I think it was a, a Statesman archive or something like that. And uh, in 86, we were doing a music business conference at the uh, Hilton downtown Austin. Okay. And uh, Roland Swinson got up mm-hmm. and announced that they were going to start a new music conference next year called South by Southwest. So that was actually announced at a... At a BMI event
0: that's what I was trying to fish out of you. <laughs> well I was going to say hey listen why don't you talk a little bit about BMI but you kind of took that into your own hands <laughs> so if anybody does have questions about BMI how do they is it just the, the Austin at BMI
1: yeah that's, a, that's the easiest way Austin at BMI.com and man we love hearing from affiliates and songwriters and you know that's part of what we're here for
0: so the, basically BMI is a performance arts or, or, uh, rights organization performance rights organization so if you're a songwriter mm-hmm. out there you don't know what BMI is you should reach out yeah, for anyway, sure. Mitch, this was a fucking huge hute. I love it. I had a blast. <laughs> I love listening to you talk to me. I don't need my country music encyclopedia. That's, that's like, it's just, I, I'm, you know, I'm just use that for, for kindling now. But thank you so much for well, coming Gutter, over thank here.
1: You. Man, thank you so much. And, you know, you're one of the first guys I met when I came to town. And, you know, I appreciate you being so supportive and, you know, being a great friend. And this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you... Um, you know, and inviting me to take part. I love, oh, I'm passionate I, I'm, about music
0: and love talking about it. That, you're the exact person I want on this podcast. So thank you again for coming over here. Thank you, I appreciate it. And I appreciate you, brother. Oh yeah, that was a blast. So much fun. Remember, Mitch is with BMI. If you do, you are a songwriter and you do not know what a PRO is, a performance rights organization, you need to reach out to them. You can email them at Austin at bmi. Ask for Mitch. Um, I think he's the only guy there. Anyway, you can find him on the good old interweb at uh, Instagram. Handle is Mitch underscore ballard. Ballard B-A-L-L-A-R-D. Um, Facebook is just Mitch Ballard all, all one word. And if you got the gumption, please head over to the That's the biggunshow.com, and check out what my band is up to these days. You can also catch us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, all with the handle of the Big Gun Show Band. And when COVID will leave us alone, please go away. Our most consistent gig is our monthly residency at the Little Longhorn Saloon, a.k.a. Jenny's, here in Austin, Texas, home of Chicken Chip Bingo, and we play the first Friday of every month happy hour. Bring Grandma. She'll have a blast. I'll be back soon. Close your eyes. You're on that island again that you just bought in the Caribbean. What five records do you have? Until next time. Oh,